This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or feint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining the Big Picture Room on Clubhouse. You're listening to The Global Gambit, uh, and I'm very excited to be joined this evening by the great Stephen Siraj. Stephen is someone who's been in and around the political scene for many a year and has been on the Polish-Ukrainian border for the best part of several days, several weeks now, much throughout the, the, the war since it began on February 24th. Stephen himself is no stranger to intense and, I think, sensitive topic and was once the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. So, very, very glad to be welcome here. And we're going to have a fantastic discussion with some fellow participants. Stephen, I'm really, really excited to be uh, joined here. And the first thing I think, um, given what we, we discussed, uh, I'd love for you to give us a broad outline, the main things, and then we can kick off with a couple of deep dive questions. Yeah, that sounds great. And thank you for putting this together, Piotr. And, and thank you for everyone for paying so much attention to what's going on here, because I think it is critically important. And as Piotr mentioned, I'm someone who spent a lot of time in some pretty rough post-conflict areas, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Colombia, spent a lot of my career working on those after 9-11, and then also negotiating with the Europeans and actually Putin's government in the G8 at that time. And then jumped in here a few days after the, you know, the serious fighting started. I've talked to top officials, went to the border and, uh, and, you know, crossed into Ukraine again just recently today. And I kind of, the top line I've called Ukraine border shock because I have been very shocked by what I've seen, particularly on the border and how different it is from what kind of the media sound bites have said. But even what I've heard from senior officials is getting back to kind of Warsaw, to the United States, to D.C., and even to the planning cells even closer, places like Zhezhov, which is, which is where I'm at right now, which is about an hour from the border that I just came from. The, the first you know, quick thing is that disconnect. There are serious threats, including human trafficking and damaging damage to the Ukraine people that are going to be necessary to rebuild this and kind of make the tra- tragedy of this war exponentially worse if it's not addressed. And kind of the, the the key conclusion is we're really going to need leadership and coordination from governments that kind of match what we've seen in the heart and soul of the Ukrainian people. So many people that have poured out their efforts over these last few weeks for them. But the coordination and strategy has really been lacking, particularly on a, on a tactical level on the ground. They're going to have consequences for decades. And I think the, the quick way before I before I turn it back over to Piotr for questions, I think there's been three kind of main stages. Like I said, I got on a plane about 24 hours after things started. You know, I got reached out to some people that had done a lot of other post-conflict things. And I think a lot of us felt really kind of scarred by what we saw happen in Afghanistan and our inability to help a lot of the people that had been so critical to us there and just wanted to jump on, on a plane, get here, do what we could. And I think the first phase that we all have kind of seen, and this is one the media has gotten quite right, is you know a phase of tragedy and heroes. I think you've seen the tragedy, and you see this when you see mothers coming across with children, f- people carrying two babies in their hands, and just the look in their eyes and the shell-shocked nature of what's happened. The Ukrainian people standing up against Putin when many people, including it seems 
so many of our governments expected them to fold, I think, incorrectly. And they have just inspired the world. And the, the true heroes are really the Ukrainian people. And there's a lot of other people that have gone into Ukraine. I mean, like what I've done is very minimal. To compare to places like Pakistan or Afghanistan, it's very safe on the Polish side of the border so far. But there are people that I think that are heroes that have gone into Ukraine to really distribute things in places that are getting getting bombed, getting shelled, people that are driving here and offering up their homes for the Ukrainian people. I think those are the real heroes, and, and I've seen many of them on the ground here. But then the second phase, I mean, I think because of it, we can all the causes of why we were so unprepared, even though there were all these signs leading into this, that this could be really caught flat-footed. You know, again, the response has been heroic, but as that initial wave, whether it's the adrenaline of people helping and getting, you know, and addressing it head on, it's, and this is what I think has not really been gotten through to the capitals or even the planning cells, is the chaos and confusion at the border and how the rush to do some things without a plan and a strategy can have really lasting impacts on the, the ability to rebuild Ukraine and, and what's it's causing the people. I mean, you go to these borders, for example, I've been on the border. You know, it's the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II, as often said, three million refugees. The number one border point is Medica, where I've been at over the last several weeks. And there's no real controls. I mean, there's there's a, there's a way that it's designed to go. But if you've done the things that I used to do where you would build these systems up, there's no real way to, fun, to control the perimeter, to pe keep human traffickers or criminals or people from coming in. There's sporadic police involvement. There's no way to, they, they have not screened or evaluated any of the people in these areas. It's like a circus-like environment. There's one guy that's wearing a hat that looks like George Washington and like a, a ripped up old polo sweater with an American flag on it and a French flag like a, a superhero cape. There's other people in paramilitary garb claiming to be French soldiers, even though they don't have any French insignias on. I mean, it's almost like a dream scenario for what could be the biggest human trafficking crisis in, in European history. Meanwhile, they're putting people, they're supposed to be going on buses to these uh, centers, which, you know, again, people have, have come from all over the world and all over Europe to help them, but they're just kind of reaching max capacity. Uh, I was just told this, this afternoon that uh, they can't even take anymore, so they're just putting people on trains. And again, it's the question of, are they being able to track these people? And you see them coming off the train with these just, you know, human tragedies. Are they being able to, you know, they're, they're under such mental stress and trauma. And are people being evaluated before they're put on a train and sent somewhere they don't know with families, with kids? Do they have a job? Do they have uh, capabilities or their abilities to track and keep them safe? It's really been, been shocking. And then today when I cross the border, you kind of see that hammered home even more. I mean, the first thing you see when you crossed over the border crossing into Ukraine was kind of in blood red, a spray painted sign that said Legion, where they're signing up foreign fighters. And you've got people pouring in there too, soldiers of fortune, people hardly trained, um, going in to do all these things. It's rife for potential chaos. The hopeful part of it, you know, and I think this is the part right now is it's hope and greater danger. The gap has been filled by our governments not having leadership and really coordination on the ground of what's going on with really NGOs doing just some phenomenal stuff and stuff that, you know, I never seen before in, in people. Like I saw a British lady in her six, in her seventies who had so many stamps going back and forth to Ukraine because there's not an effective way to get across. She is bringing shopping carts full of food across to people that were waiting in line, coming back and running again. I saw a Ukrainian woman in her 60s that I helped over today carrying two massive bags that I could barely carry. And I'm not a small guy with her to, to, to help her daughter that's trapped over there. And then there's people like there's a guy who is a former um, actor who has worked on stage, who's been coordinating things and trying to get a perimeter belt. Mohammed Rafad, who just got there from IOM in the UN, has seen these problems and tried to address them. So there's people trying to do these things. Six groups, World Central Kitchens, NGOs, but there's still not the kind of coordination needed to address this. And that's the big question. Are we going to st stop this crisis from getting even worse by not 
not keeping the Ukraine people strong the way that the people that are fighting in Ukraine have asked us to do and take on that burden while this war is going on. Absolutely, Stephen. I, I think you've almost covered everything. I don't know. I, I don't feel like I have many questions. Left. You've, you've outlined so much. <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's, it's, no, I, 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 I was going to say I'm a bit haggard from, from just getting across back across the border from Ukraine. So sorry if I went on too long. No, 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 not at all. It's just uh, I want to make sure we can go into detail in some certain things. So just so that we can uh, navigate the uh, direct the conversation. I love the um, I love the amount of detail. And, and I remember, I mean, some of the, the imagery that you're, you're giving me in my mind is how crudely things have done, particularly this legion paint as you're saying it's just been spray painted on and the initial question is what is the situation at the moment as the uh, as you say the uh, the un came out today and announced about 3 million 3.1 million people now have been um are now uh, have evacuated or are classified as as asylum seekers refugees and idps and about more than half of that is is has been received from poland so could you go into a little bit more detail exactly about the um, what the process has been in the time that you've been there from when you when when the conflict first started versus how it's changed in that time? Right. And it's, and it's really even the phenomenal story of this camp has is, is just been, you know, how it's evolved. I mean, originally people started pouring over massively and there was really no one there. There was this Nicholas was there, one of the first guys. There's people like this guy, Mike Zuckerman, six United group of Indians from all over the world that came and delivered food. So, so some initial people put it on with this massive outpouring and they've kind of had to make it up on the fly as it's poured in. And you've seen, you know, that kind of coming. And they had the welcome set. So what the process is, is people will come across the border and it comes in waves. It can come in the middle of the night. And some of these times, especially early on, it was desperately freezing. When these people were trans, when the Ukrainians were transiting in, and this is women and children largely coming into this site, then the plan was for the Polish police to then take them to these welcome centers that are kind of hollowed out old Tesco's, if you know what a Tesco is, those of you in the UK, process them and then get them out to other places. But they're moving them very quickly. It evolved to where they got so overwhelming, they moved the entry point to another place, which is now like in a lightly guarded field where all these NGOs have just clamored everywhere. Again, a lot of them well-intentioned, but really not screened. So if there's people that are up to nefarious purposes, there's almost no way to cipher them out. Just to hit the trafficking point home, a woman that I was with today that I crossed into the Ukrainian border, she is a Russian speaker who's been counseling Ukrainian refugees. And the, and the thing that she says that's most chilling, she hears from the people she's counseling is that they have friends, women and children who just disappear. And there was another one that was today, there was a report of a, of a rape that they're prosecuting out. in Poland. So you hear these stories and you can see how there's really no control. People are just showing up and offering to drive people places. So that's going on. The, the, the good news is that the people like Mohammed that's got on the ground, Nicholas, um, who's got there, they're trying to organize it. But do they have the resources? Are we so far behind the eight ball? Can we turn it around? And it, and it has gotten in some ways more organized. The Ukraine side was quite quiet tonight. And I don't know if that's because of the negotiations going on. But it gets to points where it's eerie calm. Like when they when they attacked the base outside of Lviv, which is very close to where we are, you could just see the calm, you know, the eerie calm and the, and the scared nature of the people there. So it's been waves. It's been very erratic. It'll be overwhelmed one minute and quiet the next. And uh, and that's kind of where it's evolved right now. But again, a lot of the problems now have moved to Warsaw and places like Krakow where you've just got people huddling in train stations. And, and again, they, they push them out quickly. And I think that's because of what talking to officials here, kind of the traumatic impact the World War II camps and the displacements had. But have they tracked them and prepared for the wider damage that might be caused by, by doing that without kind of a wider plan? Interesting. Thank you for that. Really interesting. You've, um, you've seen the, uh, the environment change. Uh, and just back to this Legion question, because it's one of the things that I've been really interested in, in right. because I had a... I had a friend of mine actually fly from my very apartment building here in D.C. to Ukraine and he landed in Poland uh, and then he took whatever transport he could get to right. the border and then passed over into, into Ukraine. So I'd love you to talk us through if you've, if you've met anyone from the Legion side a little bit about the um, about what you've been seeing from people coming in and out of the country for sort of more of the to support. 
Right. Well, one of the things that, you know, there's been many people I've met that have talked about going over and joining the Legion side, but you can actually go in without joining the Legion side. And I've seen more people kind of do that course because with the Legion, when you sign up with the Legion, there's all kinds of conditions and requirements uh, and, and the like. And I think, I think they com- you're committed to stay there throughout the conflict. Where I've seen more people go over, like example for today, and this is, this is kind of the dangerous piece that mixes some of the humanitarian along with some of the conflict pieces. I, I, and I don't want to give away too much information because, um, you know, I wouldn't want to put anyone at risk, but there was a group that went over and there were two that seemed more military oriented, I would say individuals, as well as some more aid oriented individuals. And they got together and decided to, to jump into a car and drive off to, uh, to Lviv and then possibly on to um, onto Kiev afterwards. So it's like there's there's a mix of people going in, and again, it's Ukrainians are welcoming you know everyone, but the the Legion process is more of a formal process and may incorporate them better. There's a lot of people going out and kind of ad living on their own, and I don't know how that is all going to mesh up and the risks that's going to have going forward. Broadening out a little bit, we've got a largely I think U.S. audience here tonight, and um, I think many of them are going to be really interested to learn. A little bit more specifically about what the um, what the American government's response has been. How much of a leading role, how much of a presence has the U.S. had, like USAID or other other entities, have they had on the uh, on the ground in Poland or Ukraine? Well, what I've been shocked by is how how much they have a non-existent presence. I suppose is how I would I would almost put it at the Medica border crossing. And I was even more shocked when I heard you know again having done this around the world in other capacities. The, the entity that does most of the expertise and building of border security, uh, protection of pre- people at borders, for the like, for the United States is, is, is what's called CBP. Uh, it's part of um, it's part Customs and Border Protection um, for the Homeland Security Department. My understanding was that they had a major uh, liaison to the ambassador and then somebody in the coordination cell, and they were sending home the person in the coordination cell. And I, I can't even tell you how shocked I was when I learned that. Because, I mean, that's all these issues that I'm talking about at the, at the facility are border control issues and relate to trafficking and the dangers and, and everything and movement of people, integration. So I don't understand how the United States cannot have more people on the ground in that. Uh, and I've been heartened by the, 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 you know, the leadership of a lot of the European nations that have really stood up and done things. But it's, it's a complicated. I don't want to spend too much time, but part of the complication is the status of Poland in the EU. And they're looking at Poland to do a lot of things where it may not have the capacity to do them that some other members of the EU or the US would have. What about the Polish government? You know, obviously, they've, they've been, we, I've read reports, you know, that some towns are literally sort of the mayors, the leaders of the, of the, the nearby settlements are sort of saying, well, look, we're at max capacity. I'm not sure how much more, how many more uh, refugees or asylum seekers we can physically intake, so to speak. Has the Polish government been supportive? Have they been proactive in this? Well, I think it's important to make a distinction between the Polish government and the Polish people. I think the Polish people have been incredibly supportive, done everything they can to reach out. The Polish government, I think, has 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 had some, you know, shown some incredible will to put things together but has struggled. And again, this may be more of a capacity issue than a political will issue. But with the scope of what we're seeing, that's so far beyond anything. When you think about Poland, too, um, you know, when they, you know, after the after the end of the Cold War, they came into a world that largely had open borders in the EU and, and, and didn't have as many of these struggles in terms of, of rough border security issues. Now you are you are they're witnessing something you know no one has seen or no one's really had to deal with. So while I think the coordination has been has been you know again it's been this gap of leadership and coordination on that. The, the trouble is is that there's beyond the Polish government, which may have capacity issues, there's no real lead stepping in, and there's confusion about who's in control. For example, when I got on the ground at the border agency. The UN got there and they said, and I, and I said, well, you know, it was IOM. And again, Mohammed, who's been a phenomenal leader of all this stuff. I was like, well, is IOM the right lead for this? He goes, well, we just got a lead because nobody else is here. Then within 24 hours, the Polish government had given the lead to the Polish Red Cross that I'm not sure has ever done anything like this before. 
And then, and then they have kind of given it over to Nicholas, who's been phenomenal leader in terms of trying to pull, pull things together, but again, doesn't have a lot of depth of experience without having additional support and funds to do something like this. So it's created chaos and that there's not more clarity about how these things are, are moving forward. I know you haven't been touching upon it too much, but this, uh, you know, the, the inconsistent treatment of people at the borders um, is that something you could comment on briefly? I have Absolutely. not seen that as much because most of the most of the people that I have seen during my time frame have been have been what you would see as stereotypical Ukrainians. I, I've heard some rumblings about this, and I have to say, a lot of the people that got to the border were very much motivated by ensuring that all people were treated fairly. I know, like for example, Nicholas was was very hurt that he had heard that people were discriminating against people, you know, might be discriminating, you know, again, I can't say because I didn't see a person, might be discriminating on the base of color, gender, ethnicity, anything like that. And that was one of the driving forces for him to be there. One of the first groups on there was was Jose Andreas's from DC's uh, World Central Kitchen, the, the sick group I knew, Sick United, that, that got the food out there. So a lot, that was a driving force of people getting there. I have heard and one of the reasons we may not have seen it more recently was that a lot of people came that came out earlier were from minority groups within Ukraine. And that might make sense because they may not have been, you know, they may have been on there on temporary work provisions or maybe they're from their from from their home countries doing other things. So they may have had less ties to staying there longer that may have thrown off the border officials. But again, I've not seen that personally, but I can tell you the vast majority of the people I've seen on the ground in the NGO community at least, are motivated to fight anything they see as discrimination against people coming in. No, that's that's fair. Um, I think one of the biggest things we often talk about is, you know, how 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 is the humanitarianism affected by, say, the security or political dimensions of, of the conflict? You can't really sort of secure a, a well-established humanitarian corridor without that security uh, or assurance yeah. that you won't have, you know, that sort of insecurity and instability ongoing. So, Right. And, and, and that's exactly the point when you, when you see what we're talking about in Medica and the, and the thing is that there's no secure perimeter and there's no credentialing. So if they follow the rules and stick, stick to the line, they should be fairly safe. But there's a lot of people interfacing there that, that again, from a security perspective, from a you know, human rights, from a trafficking perspective, there's, there's really not a lot of control. Great. My last question is just, you know, you've touched upon, upon the IOM. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, the UNHCR is the other sort of main body that's there. But where is the UN? What exactly is it doing? In these sorts of situations, it should be monitoring, it should be helping to coordinate the humanitarian um, situation. But as far as I can tell, there's very, very little presence of the UN. So if you could uh, outline to us what the UN's role is, where it is, what's going on. Right. And, I, and, I, and again, I do have to praise, you know, Mohammed Rafat, who came in and is really kind of charged into this. Um, but again, that was weeks into this that, that it happened on the ground. But the other dynamic here that's at play, and again, this is what I alluded to a bit with Poland's status and kind of creating this, this vacuum or this uncertainty that has allowed some of this to happen is that. Because Poland is in the EU, they are very hesitant to have a UN mission run within a EU country. Just as you can imagine, politically, the United States would be would be very concerned with some of its more independent minded or right wing minded or others having you know a UN mission running part of the United States. So because of that, you know the UN has been put on a bit of a back burner, at least in the cases that I've seen, compared to like where they're giving a national entity the polish red cross kind of the lead here so that has kind of hamstrung the un a bit you can criticize them for you know maybe not not doing more but they've been put in a situation where it's hard and i can't say again like individual leaders like muhammad like his team that's on the ground they have been doing everything they can in the short few days that they've been there but but the bigger question you're exactly right is why are there not more people on the ground not in places like krakow not in places like even Zhezhuv, which is an hour away, why are there not people on the ground coordinating? And I think because they're, the people aren't on the ground, it's causing our leaders to really kind of fly blind. You know, they get reports that everything's fine at a border crossing or get reports that everything's going well, you know, in terms of borders so the border people can go home. What I'm seeing on the ground is that there's a massive disconnect in information. Okay. Thanks for that, Stephen, very much. Uh, I'm going to jump over to Slavi, and then I'm going to go to Mikey to see if he has a question. So Slavi, the floor is yours. 
Uh, hello, Stephen. So nice speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. I have two questions. Um, my first question is, uh, what do you do? Is there anything that you're doing to prevent human trafficking that's happening on the border? I think there needs to be a lot more done. I, I am very, very, I, if I had to say this is one of the highest concerns that I have, is that if you don't secure the perimeter around those open areas, it's wide open. And I know there you're probably, you know, parts of the Polish police that are focused on this as well and other measures, but I don't know how you address that when, you know, and I, this is something I worked with when I was at the State Department under Colin Powell. We did a lot of co- work on these kind of issues abroad because I oversaw law enforcement abroad, uh, law enforcement assistance is I don't know how you control that when you're pushing these people out. It's not sure they're very monitored. It's not sure all these areas are controlled. And that's why I see this as potentially the biggest looming crisis after this tragedy is that while people are moving very quickly, I don't know if they took adequate measures for this. The fact is, is because it's not controlled, because we don't have the data, because we don't have, we haven't cordoned off the areas because Excuse me. It's not clear that they've they've built a tracking system up to track where all the Ukrainian women and children that are getting pushed into these different countries are going. That um, it, it's hard to even get data about people that have been abused. When you get more anecdotal stories, like I said, the, the Russian speaking woman who came over from the UK who said, "I'm seeing women." The, the people that are coming over, the Ukrainians that she's counseling, are saying, "I'm seeing women and children I know just disappear." We don't have hard numbers, but the whole point is that if you don't have those controls, you're not going to have the hard numbers. Because you're not going to know. And that's that to me is the scariest thing because we're flying blind. Thank you so much. And uh, my second question is, uh, what about the uh, NGOs wanting to keep refugees for longer to rather than getting them to Western countries so they could make more money that way? Is there anything done about that? There's a big challenge. I think this is something I alluded to a bit in the in the the fact that the Europeans are very hesitant to build kind of camps or keep them concentrated. It's kind of a trade off on two different levels, because if you if you ha- if you retain them in the same area longer, like the like for example the human trafficking things that you've mentioned, you can control the perimeter. You can have them in controlled areas. You can address maybe some of the mental mental challenges and mental trauma that have been there, which again, even I think U.S. military officials have identified the mental trauma as one of the huge unmet needs of what's going on here before you're pushing them out. The flip side of that is that in, in an ideal world, you would be providing them aid so they're not wor- they're not scrambling to have to find a job immediately. I don't know if anyone going through what they've gone through should be forced to, to, to try to find a job immediately, especially, again, when they can be preyed upon or taken advantage of. But the flip side of it is, again, is that there are, you know, people are embracing them in other, in other cities and other countries. But what are the risks and are, are those they prepared to absorb them, too? Again, as I think Piotr mentioned, um, Warsaw, the mayors of Warsaw and Krakow already said were overwhelmed. And I heard a number today that I was talking, I think it was an IOM official, said that according to Warsaw's mayor, and this was three days ago, 12% of the Warsaw population is Ukrainian refugees. And that was three days ago, which has undoubtedly gone up. So uh, so you can tell this, the stress and the strain because we haven't had an organized coordinated system to address it. Thank you so much, Stephen, for answering my questions. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being here. Thank you for your attention to these issues. Again, the more I think attention we can bring to these, because everyone is obviously focused on kind of the kinetic issues, they call them in the military sense of of bombing the buildings and destroying the buildings and destruction that's on TV. But if if you're destroying kind of the the future of the Ukrainian people with this, that, you know, that's what's ultimately going to rebuild Ukraine and, and what can be in and what can be can't be restored as easily as businesses or, or territory. Uh, well, I'm Ukra- I'm Ukrainian myself. I'm from Kharkiv, which no. was abs- absolutely destroyed. Family still there, but uh, they they are okay as of now. But uh, yes, th- I I am very worried for my family and for my people and for the country itself and <laughs> the preservation of our sovereignty. Hearing all that is it's so moving. The heroic stands you and so many people have taken. I mean, all we can do is do everything we can to, to do what we can in our spirit. But thank you for your involvement in this. And please keep participating and pushing these issues and advancing them because, you know, I, I do think the other governments really need to step up and do more. 
And it's not just writing, you know, doing top line media events. It's getting people on the ground to deal with the actual issues. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Slavi, for your, your questions. And um, yeah, I wanted to go to you first because you are Ukrainian and a voice in the country that is uh, being affected by, this, by these incidences. Um, but Mikai, um, I think if you if you had a question for Stephen, the floor is yours. Thanks, Pierre, sir. I have two questions as well, but I'll make it quick. How is the food supply going on in these refugee camps? Is it is it low? Is it moderate? Or has it been done well so far, but is starting to be strained? I just want to know how the food supply situation is with these refugee camps and also dealing with the refugee crisis overall. I think it's important to make two big distinctions on that front. One is that on the Polish side of the border, there's ample food. There's There's probably an excess of food. And actually, there's some of the people like World Central Kitchen was actually redeploying some of its people somewhere else. So because you have security and because you have so many groups focused on food, you have a lot of food capability. Um, you have some, it's still, it's uh, on the Ukrainian side, there are some issues about getting things, especially when people, when there are massive lines. Now that the lines have gone down somewhat, it's less so. But people are really saying the critical needs are kind of the, you know, the emotional trauma needs and kind of the security for people and, excuse me, and help for people when they come across. But, but food, at least on the Ukraine side, has been addressed very well. Talking to World Food Program executives, you know, and kind of the top people there, which, which have, have set up kind of office in Krakow, I think going forward, it's going to be a huge challenge because with Ukraine being kind of the breadbasket of Europe and the breadbasket of much of the world, if this war stretches on, it's going to cause more more difficulty, especially with getting access and getting materials into the, into the Ukrainian people that remain. So I think it's uh, right now on the border, uh, on the Polish side, it's not an issue, but it's something very much to watch for what's going to happen, you know, as we go weeks and months into this. In regards to you, you were mentioning a lot about the UN and the EU and various other organizations that are trying to be involved and in, in even even local organizations like the Polish Red Cross. Right. My, my my question is, is that is there any direct diplomacy going on in involvement of other nation states? Like, is Germany directly trying to assist outside of EU or UN groupings, right? They're trying to communicate maybe directly with Poland or work with them or any various other countries. Have you noticed any European or non-European countries that are doing direct diplomacy and actually trying to involve themselves more specifically with this crisis? I've seen a lot of officials on the ground from the different uh, countries that are engaged. Like, you know, I saw I saw one that was you know, today that was the, what's, what's called the regional security office from 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 one of the Ukrainian companies. A lot of them redeployed to Shizhov, where I'm at now. But it's 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 hard to tell how much of that is from EU centric or whether it's the individual countries working it. I know they are using kind of the EU framework to a large degree, but I do know the individual countries are devoting a lot of attention to this and. Definitely, the, again, separating the countries from the people, we've just seen remarkable movement of the people. And again, it, I think it's really a testament to the NGOs. And one thing that I thought about trying to do today, and I talked with Jacob about, because um, when I talked about Nicholas and I talked about this group of people that have really done the things on the border, they've done it not through funding that's been provided by the EU. One of the funny things, well, not, it's not funny, it's kind of more sad. I met with the mayor of Medica today, who is meeting with aid donors from America. The EU had a kind of a representative overall, but he was talking about how for all these things that he's dealing with, he'd gotten what amounted to about $70,000 US from the EU, which dealing with the aid budgets that I've talked about seems minuscule. Um, I mean, and then someone, you know, uh, Nicholas's group with a friend that he's had supplying his money raised over $50,000 from a GoFundMe page which shows you how radically the, the changes have been that you can have something like World Central Kitchen with its, with its private funding, or even just a GoFundMe page, providing almost as much money to the NGOs as the EU with all of its power as an economy equivalent to the size of the United States provided to the mayor. So it just shows you the revolution that can happen. And one thing we've talked about, which I'd hope to have ready for this, but Piotr, I'd love to maybe come back and maybe with some of the peop other people on the ground, is possibly setting up a GoFundMe page that could fund the actual people trying to build the perimeters and security and systems on the ground at this border security point. If the governments aren't going to move quick enough to do it, let's let's empower the people on the ground to be able to, to get this done. Absolutely. I've been working on some OSI or well, open service intelligence sort of work on, on the group on Twitter. 
and we've been launching sort of we've been trying to do our part to develop humanitarian methods and connect people and there's also this um you know airbnb method of what renting places out just so that it goes directly to the the owners right. of the property so there are, I, I love the ingenuity or the, the innovation of people to come up with workarounds um, to provide money and support. I think it's, uh, it's, it's humanity it's at its best uh, when we're dealing with it at its worst as well. But I, I next want to go to Miriam. I'm going to ask if we can stick to one question. The floor is yours. Um, my name is Miriam and I'm from Poland, actually, living in New York right now. And this is very moving. And I see a lot of what you described. I see from uh, friends of mine who are trying to help at the border and and posting those things on social media. And I was thinking the first thing that I had striking question is about Schengen area. Till now, I understand you can one can cross border to Ukraine. And that's really scary to me. So these people who are saying, I mean, many people, I believe they are real soldiers, but I'm a little bit concerned about what type of people are entering Ukraine right now and are they, is it safe? I think that is a, a huge question because, because like I mentioned, the things that I've seen with quasi-military people just not signing up with Legion, but just jumping into a van and driving off. When you think about the unintended ramifications that can have, if they do something, especially if they're tied to U.S. or, or other foreign governments, does that create an excuse for Putin to, 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 you know, to claim various things? It's a very tough and troubling thing to think about how that happens and how that plays out. People that are well-intentioned, people that may not be well-intentioned, people that may be well-intentioned but misinformed or misguided, it can't open a Pandora's box. So I, I think you're you're exactly right on that. I think there are a lot of questions. I mean, we find out how this happens. I mean, it's, it's less so if it goes through the Legion process and it's coordinated, but kind of the Wild West atmosphere that you feel out here, um, you know, I would I would be very concerned about how that plays out and, and what happens from uh, me. I know you had a couple of questions. Uh, if you can ask one or blend them together, it's yours. Sure. I'll start with one. Thank you, Stephen, for your time and for the work you're doing. So as you mentioned, and obviously you were a deputy assistant um, secretary of state in the early 2000s. I'm curious, given your experience and you witnessed, you know, the 9-11 attacks on the Pentagon in D.C. And how essentially is the United States response to this being informed by what what occurred you know in in the early 2000s and how we responded to that and what are your thoughts on on what the US is doing 20 years later right no and i think that's that's a fascinating question because you know sometimes there's an old saying in military terms that you you fight they're always fighting the last war or you overlearn the lessons of different things so one thing that i see that's a big parallel to this is how much it's unified the world in a lot of ways, it's 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 very unfortunate they were not more unified before the attack happened or when the initial incursion happened, that there weren't the kind of sanctions that, you know, may have again hindsight 2020. It's not about looking back. But but the, the fact the, the way the world has come together has been one of the, the bright spots and kind of the dark clouds of this tragedy. But I think the way we got here um, to, to, to some of your point is by maybe overlearning the lessons in terms of with what happened in Afghanistan. And I think the Afghanistan situation for a lot of people, including myself, was was quite scarring to see people that had been allied with the United States, people that had risked their lives. I mean, I some I had people die that worked for me um, in what was then the largest post-Taliban bomb. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, many people had, 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 you know, put themselves on the line for that. And then to see them, many left behind, not intentionally, I don't believe, but just, just by many faults that, 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 that I think helped inspire what happened now in Ukraine. But I think that the parallels, I mean, people are always drawing parallels are trying to say it's a new cold war. They're trying to, to go that it's sometimes you can overlearn the lessons or, or be too stuck in the mindset of what's happened in the past. I think there's a lot of critical differences in what's going on now, too. But I do hope the one thing that comes out of it, and I hope that it's it's unified in a better way than potentially what happened in the Iraq war, is that there is this, I think, crystallization of the importance of countries that value freedom, countries that value, value openness, country that that oppose the raw abuse of power that you we've seen from Russia stand together. So that's one of the, again the hopeful lights out of all this tragedy that we all hope would never we've never have seen in our lifetime. Uh, Anita, it's lovely to see you. If you have a question for Stephen, the the floor is yours. Great to be here and really impressed with the work you're doing 
um, on the ground, Stephen. I think, you know, this is the part that often forgotten in conflicts like this. I mean, everybody, you know, in the media just keeps talking, you know, about sanctions or military power and doing, not doing enough. And we definitely, this is something I feel like we, we overlook a lot. So you talked about the EU not wanting to have the UN conduct an operation, but you also actually like in your experience, you've seen more government coordination and oversight. So compared to these other experiences, is this more haphazard or is this a common problem? Uh, and thank you, Doctor. And Doctor Kellogg does does excellent work, and it's it's a it's an honor to be serving with you. As we're we're both one of what's called the inaugural Brzezinski postdoctoral fellows. I, I think there's probably no greater challenges than we're working on because Sid Bigner Brzezinski, who it's named for, was a Polish immigrant to America who you know stood up to to, to Russian aggression, especially was was promoting democracy in Eastern Europe. So I, I highly recommend it. Dr. Kellogg has a has a great podcast too that I'd, I'd, I'd encourage everyone to listen to. But I think you raised a raised a good point. And it's and again this is where trying to draw the big analogies is sometimes difficult because what the reason you could have more coordination in some ways and kind of a top down approach in a place like Afghanistan or Pakistan was you had kind of the unquestioned fact that the government didn't have the capabilities to do a lot of the things. So the U.S. and U.N. was coming in with the money and authority to kind of steer it from the top. And, you know, in Afghanistan, I remember we we broke it into five main areas. We had like the British control the narcotics side of it. We had the Italians work on the police and, and law enforcement training. There were, there were ways to divide it with outside governments. Because Poland is an EU member, but maybe not, you know, not as inst- have the capacities of, say, like a Germany would, you know, like a, like a major world power. It's kind of this gray area where it's not one of the states that would get aid and kind of defer to the UN or the US, but it may not have the capacity to deal with, again, in all fairness to Poland, is like a historic crisis that uh, that is you know just surprised so many people out of the blue so it's a great question and it, and i think it leads to a lot of these lack of government coordination like in some ways it's far easier to operate here like i said it's not heroic really for someone like me to come here because it's so much more stable on the polish side of the border than it would be like when i was in pakistan or afghanistan or somewhere or even like parts of colombia maybe but at the same time it's more difficult to get the pieces of government to fit together because there's not a clear lead on a lot of these challenges. Just a quick follow-up. So it's your understanding the EU itself has no sort of overarching organization to help um, humanitarian assistance? Oh, no, they, they do have some some or, um, overarching things to do that. But when they're thinking about foreign aid, it's usually outward-looking, not inward-looking. Like, for example, like AID would not really fund things within the United States. So it's and it does have in its secretariat some pieces to do that because it's incorporated people, but they do still have a lot of individual sovereignty in terms of how they direct this. And and as you know, for all the EU's major benefits, one of the critiques of the EU has been over the years is because of its management structure with constantly rotating secretariats. It's sometimes hard for it to to move quickly in different pieces. And I think they've done a remarkable job given the situation they faced. But again, the, the, a lot of the aid agencies are, are lar- more focused on how they apply EU efforts abroad than how they do things internally within their states on, on things like this, because normally there's not these type of crises. Well, that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it that way. So thank you. We, um, we actually had a, a delightful, um, insightful conversation with Dr. Kellogg about a month ago. And we discussed uh, China and Russian relations in the context of Ukraine. Albeit that was about 10 days before the, um, I think it was the, yeah, I think it was the 12th of February. So just under two weeks before this uh, invasion began. Jaya, I think you had an interesting question and then we'll get to Kim. I do. Thank you, Dr. Shraj. Thank you uh, for speaking from your heart and bottom lining the realities on the ground. Could you tell us more about the way that refugees are currently tracked and how supporting countries may partner to oversee them? We can obviously see the the promising opportunities once we know, um, you know, who to support when it comes to resource allocation and the, the support that they need. Right. And that's one thing that I, I think is critical. And it's unclear to me right now 
how much of that is being tracked. The, the way that it's supposed to work when, when as, as the system comes out is they come out, like, for example, if you're, if you're sitting at the border crossing where I'm at, there is like a, a, a fenced in, and I may post some pictures of this because I've tried to, you know, kind of a barbed wire fenced in area where they come down through the, through the fences and then come out. And that's where you hit this kind of chaotic circus-like atmosphere of all these different NGOs providing services, which I think is kind of the dangerous point for diversion. Then they go straight down through that line, get to a, get to a, 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 a system of buses that then will transport. And this is again, where you've they've had dangerous things where people have said and and you know said you know don't don't just trust people that say hey i'm willing to drive you to wherever you want to go they've attempted to deal with that by then putting them on buses and then taking them to these welcome centers which are kind of hollowed out like tesco's if you're familiar with the uk or malls where there's just masses of humanity in um, and they are trying to figure out wh- where to get them. They're supposed to have a registration system. But the one that I have been in recently, again, it's not, you would think it would be more, I would say, streamlined. I mean, you're talking about things like people having things written on cardboard saying register here, people having signs that say going to the UK. It's not clear to me. And again, I, there, there, there may be more data that the, the Polish institutions have on this than I have seen how much they're being registered and tracked and to what degree that's happening. One of the most disturbing things t- I heard tonight was that those facilities, these, these welcome centers are so full that what they're doing now is they're having the people walk onto the bus and they're just taking them directly to a train station. And as someone mentioned with the Shenzhen area and the system, you know, they can basically travel anywhere. And I don't know how they would track them in that case. You know, I don't know if they don't go to a welcome center and they just go straight to a train station. I can't imagine they're being tracked unless there's some magical thing I don't know about. I don't know how they would be tracked or or monitored after that. Stephen, it's incredible the amount of comprehensive answers you're giving and and still keeping it. It's it's great. We're getting through lots of different perspectives here. It's really uh, really informative for me. We we tried to cover the humanitarian perspective as much as... Next up, I think I said it was Kim. So Kim, the floor's yours. And then if Dr. Dan has a question, we'll go to him. Thank you so much. And thank you, Stephen, for being here and speaking to us. I know personally, I've never experienced anything like this personally. So hearing it through your voice, um, it's just a whole different scenario for me. So I appreciate this. And my question to you is today, I heard that the mental health crisis is more serious. And you did touch on it a little bit when you were speaking. For example, um, the EU is making arrangements. They made arrangements for a particular woman and the people that were going to take her in told the story today that she wrapped herself in a blanket, but she refused to leave the border because she can't wrap her her head around the fact that her town is gone and she thinks she's going back to Ukraine. How serious is the mental health situation with these people and how many are staying right there? I think you've hit on a critical point. And I, what I was impressed by, because there is, the, you know, there's, there's coordination that's kind of going on uh, on the U.S. side, by somewhat by the military that's been deployed here, because the military has you know the most logistical expertise in these situations. But even the military-led group said the num- perhaps the number one issue, the issue that it's not being addressed, that's you know the the flashing red light is this mental trauma issue that's out there. You know, and I would say co-equal with the with the trafficking risk and the and the criminal risk, but. I, I mean, you just see this, and I mean, it's hard for me not to get emotional about it because you see so many people in these situations. I, I can't give you a hard number. There are, that's one of the things that have been built up, again, through the NGOs, really, is that there are areas where they can rest on the side. You see them shaken. I was at the IOM tent today, and it was, you know, again, it was just incredibly moving. These, like a group of, like, I think it was three to four Ukrainian women with their children came and said, they said, there's no place for us to go. And that was where this, this, this story was coming back. Again, I'm, I'm giving a lot of anecdotal things because of what I hear. So I'm, I'm trying to make a distinction between like academics that I've actually proven this and have hard data that, yes, they canceled the, the welcome centers or they said they're too full. It's, it's what I'm hearing from officials on the ground. But you see them and you wonder about that. And, and again, I... It's, it's like if you, if you just, you know, no one wants to be in a hospital for a long time, but if you let, if you release people too early from a hospital, you can cause more damage. 
The idea was that you get these, you get the Ukrainian immigrants out to the cities as fast as possible. But if you're not providing them with the, the, the emotional and, and support they need, if you're not providing them with the tracking you need, are you creating a bigger crisis? Are you seeding a bigger crisis across everywhere? And that's my big fear. Again, um, so I think you couldn't have hit on a more important point and one that, you know, you see almost every minute here when you're when you're on the border and you see people coming out. So uh, so I, I can't thank you enough for that question. I can't thank you enough for, you know, Peter and everyone for raising this, because I think it's things that, that have to be addressed or, or they're going to come back in, in ways that, uh, you know, that we can't even imagine right now. Thank you, Kim, for that great question. And um, something we haven't touched much upon actually in the club is the mental health aspect of this and i know erin will probably have a question so we'll come to her uh, after dr dan uh, yeah thanks piotr um steven uh thanks uh for uh doing this uh you have a good grasp of the situation i appreciate your contributions here so i'll just cut to my point um so i'm a former obama administration uh biodefense and public health appointee i'm a infantry vet um of oif so the logistics here these are my questions um, I've been hearing some of the same reverberations of what you said, but there are ways. We do have some lessons learned and some best practices that could be used on the international stage um, with the help of USAID. And I'm not saying that they're they're not doing this. I'm just wondering, what are the things you're seeing where the myopic issues are that haven't been addressed? As you mentioned, mental health. We have a thing called psychological first aid that we use in any disaster or any trauma. I had to... Uh, go through training for all the soldiers who would come in pre-deployment, post-deployment. We have these things. We know what to do. And I believe these countries also know what to do. I mean, they get people who come into the country all the time. So there's a way to do the tracking. Is there a reason why these um, centers, welcome centers, are not forward deployed? Is it because uh, it's an open site for targets? Or is it just that it's just not implemented where all of these can be done at one? to avoid this whole issue of human tracking, to be able to identify the needs of women and children and all those who have other disabilities and the elderly, because there's certain people who have functional and access needs that are definitely different and are, need to be addressed. And I would parse out the children piece also. Are there things that you know about that are actually dedicated for children? They're not little adults, so they have little different needs for their psychological well-being, mental well-being, and developmental well-being while in the chaos of all of this. Those are some of the things that I would say that are, I, I think are glaring. What are your thoughts? No, no, I think those are those are great questions. And thank you for your service and all this. And that that has been, I think, in, some, in one question by forward deployed, do you mean deployed in the centers or do you mean forward deployed in Ukraine as opposed to Poland, for example? Forward deployed, um, no. At that border, you're saying they're getting bussed to another site. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. there would be, it would be ideal if it's up front, right? And then you can right. have your backtracking on the back end. That's what you do when you post-deploy, pre-deploy, whichever way, egress and egress, you have to have access and be able to do that tracking that you said right. is lacking, which I find is a problem. Right, right. No, I think you're. I think you're exactly right, and that's one of the big questions. And your overall macro question that you've raised too is true. These are there's a lot of lessons learned. You know, we should you shouldn't have someone that's a, you know that's in an NGO and young trying to fig, you know trying to figure out all this by themselves because there's nobody there with funding and support to guide them. I mean that this situation should not be happening. Again, this is what. What really gets me fired up, and the points you raise are exactly true. And, I, and to the credit of kind of the military coordination group that's that's gone on, you know, in Rajov and everywhere else, the the word is that you know they've recognized these needs, but how do they get implemented on the ground? And that's what I'm not seeing. I mean, there there are there are, you know there's you get reports that there is some of this going on. There are you know, treatments for 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 children in these. Um, in these border care, you know, in these, in what they're called the welcome centers. But again, the goal has been, as far as I can see from the, from the way that this has been handled is to get the refugees out of those centers and out of this areas as quickly as possible. And that's where I see the real danger that you've talked about. Why, you know, you need to evaluate that very quickly. That's also something Mohammed had raised in talking about when he went across, because at certain points, it wasn't today when I was in Ukraine, but at certain points, 
you would have fairly safe situation on the Polish side, but you would have long lines. And he would say the military and other people have provided things where if you have a if you have a physical trauma, there's fairly good coverage for that. But he would see people like I think he mentioned a child that um, that you saw that had like Down syndrome or had other issues and had other things going on. Those weren't being picked up or they didn't have the capacity to deal with the NR. So I think you're hitting on exactly the right point. And the point that is so frustrating to you and to me and to people like us that have seen this in other environments, there's no reason we have to reinvent the wheel here. These are things that could have been foreseen, could have been addressed with the right kind of leadership and management structure at some of these places. And in, in the fact that we're now, what, two weeks in and we haven't seen that is is even more frustrating to me. And I, and I think if you would, if you were on the ground and saw this too, knowing from your service what you'd seen, I think would probably be equally frustrating and, and moving and challenging. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you guys. Uh, great, great question there, Dr. Dan. And I was very curious to hear what you would have to say. Next up, we're going to go to Guta. And I see Dr. Kaisha has joined us again. So we'll jump over to Dr. Kaisha after, after Guta. My question is basically talking about being on the ground. I want to shift a little to journalists and people who are actually trying to cover that wall and register those atrocities that can possibly be used in court against these people, right? Let's have hope that somebody can be brought to be accountable when this is over, right? And mid in the report uh, sans frontières, they open on the 12, or what they are calling the Press Freedom Center in Kiev to support mainly the local journalists that uh, up to today they didn't have helmets or bulletproof vests that they brought with them, right? And today it's been confirmed for their killed. They've been specifically targeted and the usual thing by snipers and everything else. So uh, Ukraine is today the 97th on the list of the World Freedom of Press Index and for their security to work. And Russia is the 150th place. And my question is, what can be done to help this reports of frontier and uh, and the local reporters to continue to cover what backup they can have because they are all doing by themselves and I would like just to read the name of the four reporters Brett Renault from New York Times US Victoria Hoshima assaulted and killed in Ukrainian, Pierre Zazanski, Fox News, Irish, and Oleksandra Kushinova, Fox News team, Ukrainian. Thank you. I, I want to thank you for reading those names too, because it shows you, but and for your question as well, because you are exactly right to, for for kind of the truth to shine through and to to effectively address these we have to have information information is so critical that you have a press that can provide that information in a fair you know in a fair way in a way that that shows the reality that's happening on the ground that that allows debate on both sides of what they've seen and what the, and, and how they interpret it so I think that's it's credibly and, and there's a remarkable bravery among so many members of the press that are going over there. I would also add that one of the things that I think is challenging is that you also need people that can stay there longer term in one area, which requires more press. One of the things I've seen on the border and one of the things I think that is not really covered or why it's not understood both by senior officials up the chain of command in Europe and the United States, but also among reporters is I'm at the border. Like, for example, I saw a very prominent U.S. reporter, one of the most famous, came and interviewed people at the board. And I see them, they come in, they're there for like you know, maybe an hour, maybe 20, 30 minutes. A lot of them come in, rotate out, get like a quick sound bite, and then rotate out. So it's really hard to understand what's going on at the border when there's not that presence there over time to really dig into the deep stories. Having press that can stay there, that are protected, 
that have those capabilities is something that's critical. And I, and I can't do more than to honor them than what you did, which was to read the names of the people that have kind of made the ultimate sacrifice for, for us to have that information. So that that is really moving. And thank you again for your question. I want to give the floor to, to Dr. Kaisha. So uh, all yours. Thank you. And thank you, Stephen, for being here. I just have briefly, I'll do two quick questions. I'll put them into one because I was listening to some of your discussion, especially, first of all, I've been following the WHO and their initiatives to definitely with their 45 million budget for inside Ukraine and 12 million in the surrounding countries that are accepting refugees to and their main effort, not just to health, but also is for mental health, um, is included in on that. And so what you think about how that will be installed and I guess really being able to find and like you say, track people to make sure that these efforts are, are taken care of. And then also with the children, I know that UNICEF keeps saying they have these blue dot centers that they have placed out. So how many are you actually seeing of these blue dot centers where they said they are able to track women and children and also do examinations there? Because I'm also especially worried now with COVID rates, especially in Europe, increasing now and we're seeing a subvariant that's increasing just what's going to go on with the health situation thank you yeah i think those are excellent questions and again some of these and, and this goes to the bigger point is like writing the top line check is not the hard part saying that you're going to spend x amount of money i think at this stage and again I, i'm very sympathetic with these organizations having done a lot of stuff on the ground it's how does it get to the people that where you need to get it and again I have not personally seen the you know the blue dot centers that you've that you mentioned again when I look at at, at uh, the Medi Medicare crossing point the only UN presence and it was only, it was it was only put up there in the last few days according to people that were on the ground was an IOM tent where you know Muhammad uh, has done you know, the leader there who just got on the ground has done great stuff they're talking about putting up signs they're talking about putting up centers I I have not seen it and then one of my first things and this was really frustrating talking with some people today I was like why has someone with with authority not put up a sign at least if you're not going to secure the perimeter if you're not going to build a build a, a a fence around where people are if you're not going to screen the random people you know some who look this is a quote you know, called quote unquote shady, then at least put a sign up that says to women, do not take rides with people, do not do these things, uh, you know, do not go off with people unless they're, unless, you know, unless you, they're, they're, you've gotten to the bus and, and they're cleared with, with other people, you know, cleared as, as officially registered. So there's a lot of things that people are claiming to do, you know, and again, I, I heard them talking, it may have been a blue dot center, they talked about putting up an information center. But if you watch how people stream out of this, again, it's a carnival. They've got all these people putting stuff in their face, all these things. Are they going to find a center that, you know, in this mass of humanity when they come through the border on the way to buses? Again, maybe in the, in the actual centers, I haven't seen them, you know, labeled that well. Again, a lot of the signs in the, in the centers are just things written on cardboard, things written on paper. Uh, it's easy to talk about these things going out, it's I, I have not seen them on the ground. Again, maybe there's somewhere I haven't been. So I have to caveat that from what I'm hearing. I'm hearing a lot of top line pledges. I'm not seeing it implemented on the ground where 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 it's impacting people, at least in like places like the Medica site where they're coming out. I hear and I hear a lot of talk about doing that in the future. Again, the, the if people are pushed out and again they've already come out of the border and pushed into these European countries before that's been done, is it too late? Or have you already cast the seeds for a greater crisis? Great, thank you very much for that last question, Dr. Keisha and Stephen. Well, I mean. <laughs> it's been a, it's been it's suddenly an hour and a half has gone now uh, well somewhere i think you've touched us all with your your candidness but also real sort of sensitivity to it as well i very much welcome you to come back as soon as you can any final messages you want to you want to leave the audience yeah i would like to say thank you for all you're doing because as as you mentioned the thing that are getting the top line stories, if you you know, if you just flip on the TV, it's the negotiations, it's the bombings, the kind of you know, and you you do see stories about the refugees coming out, but it's usually kind of at a superficial you know surface level. The more you can hammer home to your own governments, to your own people, not just saying, oh well, we're going to devote forty five million dollars to this. What are you doing now? What who is on the ground now? Who is dealing with the women and children that are coming across now? Because 
those that's what's going to impact things not not a, a week later after your appropriations process has gone through after you've funneled the money down to someone and then you've set up a bureaucracy how you deal with the things now is what's going to have a difference everything you guys can do to push that for for action and tangible results and measurement you know uh, for people acting now is is i think what will make the difference not you know, high-minded goals that happen four months from now when, when people are already out of the border and possibly, and, and potentially a desperate or, or tough situation. So thank you for all you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, being on the ground is, is certainly um, the hardest thing to see in person, but thank you very much for your time and see you soon. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.